So people look for different pathways to find joy, peace, and fulfillment. Some look to material possessions, while others look to intellectual pursuits and some to some type of spiritual experience. People go through life seeking to attain some standard that they think will help them through their career, athletically, musically, or some other area. But what we recognize as those that know the truth is that nothing, nothing will produce peace, joy, and fulfillment or contentment in us like a deep, enduring relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That relationship that we have with God through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, enables true peace, true joy, true fulfillment. We recognize this. We have to remember that we live in God's world. It's God's world. God created this world. God sustains this world. He is the sovereign ruler over this world. The world is under the sovereign authority of Almighty God. This is true whether the world recognizes it or not, acknowledges it or Him or not. The Bible tells us in Psalm 145 and verse 13, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and He is kind in all His works. The Bible tells us in 1 Chronicles 29, David is speaking. He says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are You, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the Kingdom, O Lord, and You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from You, and You rule, You rule, You rule over all. In Your hand are power and might, and in Your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. King Jehoshaphat had a very similar thing he wanted to say and did say in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 5 and 6. And Jehoshaphat, good name, stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are You not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In Your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand You. God is Lord. God is King. The psalmist in Psalm 103 in verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. These are statements of fact. God's not trying, Oh, I hope that I'll be able to maintain my kingdom. Oh, I hope I'll be able to to gain a kingdom. I, I hope that I'll be able to rule someday. These are statements of fact. God rules over all. We live in God's world. This is a fact. Yet through, though this world is under God's authority, man, every man, is born in sin. David wrote in Psalm 51 and verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's speaking about the fact that he was born a sinner. Born a sinner. There is an opposing ruler in this age. The Bible speaks of this ruler as the God of this age. Small g. The the small g God of this age. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have an opposing ruler in this age. We know that uh, what it, we understand what it's like to live under the rule of sin and under the influence of satanic darkness. We've, we've all experienced that in our lives. We were dead in our trespasses. We were, by nature, children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2 tells us. Do you remember those days? Do you remember what it was like to be ruled? Ruled by your passions? Do you remember what it was like to be like the rest of mankind? But in God's magnificent love, and in accordance with God's magnificent plan, we have this glorious ray of light in the midst of Ephesians chapter 2, where he speaks of us having been born in sin. He says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. So we know what it's like to have been dead spiritually and in bondage spiritually. But we've gone from death to life because of God's magnificent grace. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God's beloved Son. We were enslaved to sin, but now we're enslaved to God. We were enslaved to sin, but now we are enslaved to God. There's a change of ruler. We, didn't, we weren't set free from one ruler to ourselves. We were set free from one ruler, cruel, devastating, results in eternal punishment and eternal death. He's transitioned us, transferred us under another ruler. A gracious ruler. A merciful ruler. A patient ruler. A kind ruler. A ruler who not only tells us what is right to do, but enables us to do what is right. And the end of that authority is eternal life with God. From death to life, from enslaved to sin, to enslaved to God. When we were under the control of sin, we enjoyed sin. And we lacked righteousness. But we were stuck. We were stuck. Try as we might. We were tethered to a cruel, dissatisfying master. But now we have come happily under the rule of God. We have come happily under the rule of God. We want to live out our lives under His rule. And He's enabled everything to make that happen. This morning, as we continue our study of Romans chapter 6, we want to see four of five truths that this passage teaches us about God's reign over His people. So I'm going to list the five truths, four of which we'll cover this morning, one of which we'll cover next week, and then we're going to read the passage. These are the five truths. First of all, God's reign is a reign of grace, beginning from verse 14 to verse 15. Secondly, God's reign impacts the heart. Verse 17. Thirdly, God's reign impacts our goals. The end of verse 17. Fourthly, God's reign produces righteousness. We see that throughout the passage. And finally, and we'll cover this next week, God's reign results in eternal life. With that being said, let us look at God's words. Romans 7, excuse me, Romans 6, beginning in verse 14. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But grace be to God, or thanks be to God, that you, who were once slaves of sin, 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's reign is a reign of grace. That's how he ends the last paragraph in verse 14. That we're not under the law, but under grace. Okay, well if we're not under the law, what's the guide? What's the standard? If if the law is thrown off, shouldn't we just then do whatever we feel like? No, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Grace is a different kind of ruler. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. God has demonstrated His love, affection, and favor toward us without us doing anything. Grace is not only God's unmerited favor. Grace is also, very importantly, God's power, God's enablement, God giving us the ability, God's power that produces obedience. God's reign is a a reign of grace. In other words, when God rules over a person, whatever He calls that person to do, He gives that person the ability through His grace to do it. He doesn't just make proclamations and make prescriptions or make uh, mention of things not to do. He gives us the very ability to do what He's called us to do. God's reign is a reign of grace. We see it so clearly in the testimony of the Apostle Paul in many ways, but one particular verse always comes first to mind when I think of God's grace at work in a human being. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, listen to what God's Word says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Pause right there. Many times people will say that and say, well, um, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm sinning and I'm doing these things and I'm, I'm uh, going off of God's pathway, but by God's grace I am what I am. Um, that's not what he's saying. That is a gross misuse of the text. Listen to what he says he is by the grace of God. His grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't empty. It wasn't fruitless. It wasn't unable. It wasn't vain. On the contrary, completely different, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Can Can you get the sense of Paul talking about God doing a work in him and through him by His grace? God's grace is not simply, okay, everything's fine now, sit back and and do nothing. God's grace empowers me to do what His Word instructs me to do. God's grace enables me, enlivens me, empowers me. This is to be under grace. It is God's grace that produces within us a worthy walk. Take a look at Colossians 1 for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, starting in verse 9, I love this prayer of Paul for the church at Colossae. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
may you be strengthened with all might according to His, God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. It's God's grace that produces within us that worthy walk. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians, you're just taking a left. One book, Philippians chapter 2. Right in the middle of chapter 2, we see this call in verse 12 to work out our salvation, to, to allow the salvation that God has produced to be demonstrated outwardly. Verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work to the outside, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, here's the reason, it is God who works in you. What does the rest of it say? Both to will and to do for His good pleasure. This is what God does. God works in us to accomplish His will. That's grace. God's reign as our sovereign King results in God giving us the ability to do what He's called us to do. I want to be a member of God's kingdom that obeys Him, don't you? I want to be a loyal subject. And I want my life to cry out obedience to my Master. And I don't have to go that road alone. The very God who has called me, He will also do it. I want that grace to be at work in me. God's reign, God's kingdom is a reign of grace. Head back to Romans 6. God's reign, secondly, impacts the heart. God's reign impacts the heart. So he asks the question in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, because God's grace enables us to do what's right. And then he uses the in verse 16 this, this analogy. Don't you know? Don't, this, is, this is common sense. This is something you already know. If you obey someone, you've become that one's slave. If you obey your flesh, you're a slave to your flesh. If you obey God, you're a slave to God. If you obey sin, you're a slave to sin. If you obey righteousness, you're a slave to righteousness. It's, it's just a, a common principle. Verse 17, listen to what he says. But thanks be to God. I mentioned this last week, that word thanks. He could have used a different word, but he chose to use charis, grace. But grace be to God that you who once were once slaves of sin have become, this is not a command, this is a statement of fact, have become obedient from the heart. Ooh, that's interesting. We have become obedient from the heart. From the heart. Not obedient from our flesh. Not obedient from external pressure. Not obedient from the proclamation from the pulpit. Obedient from the heart. This is the inside out. This is what we need. And God's reign produces an impact on the inner man. Because we were dead, and He has made us alive. He has placed His Spirit on the inside. He's placed His Spirit within us. We've been sealed until the day of redemption. And that work of the Spirit in us makes us not only alive, He helps us to understand the Scriptures, He enables us to do what we're called to do, He comforts and and guides the believer. These are all truths. God has always intended for His people to follow Him from the heart. Not just through robotic, unthinking, obedience. Listen to this passage from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 verses 12 and 13. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your Good. He wants to, to work in us this love and affection that comes from the heart. Look in the middle. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God wants us from the inside out. The externals do nothing for God. Remember the book of Amos? In Amos 5.21, God says, I hate. That's a strong word. I hate 
your gatherings together. I hate your songs, and I hate your sacrifices. Interestingly, the sacrifices were called for by God, and yet God says, I hate you what you're doing. Why? Because it's all about the externals for them at that point. They were worshiping other gods and making sure they covered down on God, the God of Israel. Oh, we'll make sure we cover this one too. No, 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 no. I'll either be your God, and I will save you, and I will sustain you, and I will bless you, and I'll provide you with an eternal home, or you can have multiple gods, and my judgment will reside on you, and no blessing will come upon you, not from me. I hate your songs. I hate your solemn assemblies. Why? It's, it's got to start from the inner man. It starts inside, and then it flows to the outside. Take a look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and we're going to cut right into the middle of it in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. God's word says, And you show that you, Corinthians, are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but on tables of what? Human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Listen carefully. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's letting us know that this comes from God's working in us God is crafting us to be a letter to the world around us. A letter to our neighbors. A letter to our children. A letter to our parents. A letter to our fellow church members. But a letter to an unsaved world that doesn't know Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing. And God's Spirit's at work in our hearts, changing us. The way that God has made this impact is twofold. First of all, He has made us spiritually alive, which we made reference to in Ephesians chapter 2. And secondly, He has placed His Spirit within us. We want. We want to obey. Is that true about you? I didn't ask if you obeyed every instance this week. I asked you, do you want to obey God? Would it be true of you that you would say His commandments are not grievous? His commandments don't make you think, oh, I wish He wouldn't think that about this. I wish He wouldn't make me do this. I wish He wouldn't make me not do that. Is that how you think when you think about God? I would say to you, if that's how you think, there is something desperately, desperately wrong in your perception of God first of all and in your relation of God second of all. Because a believer, while not always obedient, a believer wants to obey God because we know He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life so that we became alive physically. And secondly, He brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He forgave all of our sin. He has granted us all the righteousness necessary to enter into His presence one day and to know that we have an eternity secure with Him. So, as one who has been redeemed, our heart's desire, the cry of our heart is, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. Thankfully, He's told us what to do. We want to obey. That's what God has done. God's reign impacts our hearts. Thirdly, Back in Romans chapter 6, head back there please. God's reign impacts our goals. Romans chapter 6. We'll look at verse 17 again. I'll start at the beginning, but we're, we're interested now in the second half of the verse. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, from the heart, to, here's where we're starting, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is a very interesting phraseology. We've been obedient, we've been made obedient from the heart, from the inside out, to the standard of teaching that we have been committed to. So that's passive. 
God has said, this, this is it. As my children, I'm, I'm making you obedient from the heart to this standard of teaching that I have committed to you. Underneath this, you've been committed to this. But what is this that we were committed? It's the standard of teaching. The Greek word there is tupos. Tupos. It's the mark of a stroke or blow. It's a print. It's a figure formed by a blow or impression. Or you could even see it as a mold. I don't do molds. But I've seen my kids do molds. Like jello molds. Make the jello, mix it up. You pour the jello into the jello mold. It sits there and it hardens or whatever jello does to become jiggly jiggly and, and like not fall apart. Turn over the mold and there's this, this figure. It looks like the mold. It's that, that kind of idea. The word was used in John chapter 20 and verse 25 by Thomas speaking of the marks of Jesus' body. Listen to what he said. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's Something has happened. It's a, it's a marking. You've been marked by something. This is the standard of teaching. It marks us. The word is used many times in the New Testament to mean uh, example or pattern. Example or pattern. While born, uh, being born again does not, does not produce robotic similarities, the handiwork of the Spirit of God with the Word of God will produce general similarities. Not robotic similarities. We all dress the same. We all wear the same perfume or cologne, all the same makeup or none, all the same music that we listen to or not. We're not talking about cookie cutter stuff. We're talking about general similarities that come from the Word of God through the Spirit of God. The Word of God is fixed, correct? The Spirit of God is one, correct? But He's working with individuals And we have differences. And the way that God does this, we all are being marked differently over the course of time. And yet the standard of teaching produces so many similarities. The Bible provides clear truth that captivates the minds of God's people. That's called objective truth. Can I take a moment to talk just for a moment about objective truth? Object. It's over there. Subject. Right here. Subjective truth is I get to decide. That's our world today. Our world today believes in subjective truth as a general rule. So, you can believe what you want to believe unless it's Jesus and then you're just dumb. You can believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe My subjective experience informs me that this is the way to go about things, and your subjective experience tells you that that's the way to go about things, and that's fine. Your truth, my truth, all truth is God's truth. You ever hear that one? No, objective truth, something outside of me determines what's true. And in this case, the standard of teaching, here's the objective truth. It's not the tradition of the church. It's not a theology book that someone wrote. It's not a catechism. It's not a confession of faith. Those things may be very helpful. Those are not the standard of teaching. The standard of teaching is right here. You hold it in your hands. This is the standard. God has given us objective truth. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to teach and to conform the believer to Jesus Christ, His Son. In order to be properly marked to this standard of teaching, in order to be properly marked, we must be pressing. Take a look, please, again, at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3 this time. If we're going to be marked 
by the standard of teaching, if it's going to be our example, if it's going to be the, the, the striking that changes the way that I look and the way that I speak and the way that I act, it's going to be because we have come underneath the authority of God and we're pressing toward the mark. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Listen carefully. And if in anything you think otherwise, in other, in other words, if you're not pressing toward the mark, if you're a believer and you're not pressing toward the mark, the end of verse 15, God will reveal that to you also. So I want to, I want to say, we're going to read a little bit more in just a second, but I want you to think about what, what that passage just said. You call yourself a believer, and you're going to be honest with yourself, I'm not pressing toward the mark. If that's true about you, I'm not pressing toward the mark. I want to ask you, has God been knocking? My friend, if God's not knocking on your door and you know you're not pressing toward the mark, you've got a real problem. Because God tells you, if you're not pressing, you're not following likewise, like this, He'll let you know. So if there's no knocking, Where's the problem reside? The problem resides right here. Something's wrong. Maybe I have not truly recognized the gravity of my sin. Maybe I have not truly recognized the glory of Jesus' work. I haven't come to the place of recognizing this sin does me no good. It only leads me away from God and toward death. I don't want this. Repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness and receive righteousness and receive eternal life. And you know what happens at that very moment? You've been made spiritually alive and God places His Spirit within you. And if you walk contrary to the pattern established in God's revealed Word, the Spirit will let you know something's wrong. And if there's no something's wrong, then I don't know that you've come to the place of recognizing the gravity of your sin and have turned from it and to, to Jesus Christ. And I would, I would challenge you today, if that would be true of you, today is the day. Turn. Today is the day. Call. Today is the day. Receive from God what you desperately need. But... For, the, for those of us that have already experienced that work of redemption and we're pressing or not, when we're not, God says, hey, this is the direction. God does this. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example to pass you have in us the standard the marking that you have in us you want to see god marking you the way that god has marked his believers before you your life my life our lives must be changing god's word does this god's spirit does this god's rule and reign does this it's a reign of grace he enables us he changes us he does it from the heart and he changes our goals i want to be i want to be like the son of god i want to be like god i want to imitate my father ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 be ye imitators of me be ye imitators of me as i am of christ walk in love he goes on we as believers should be examples to other believers. The Thessalonians did this well. We're going to come back to the book of Thessalonians in a few minutes, so we're not going to read the passage right now. But the, the believers at Thessalonica were examples. They were tupas. 
to, to other believers to walk in the light of God's truth. And Paul told Titus to instruct the older men in the church to be examples. He said this in Titus 2.7, show yourself in all respects to be a model. There's that word again. A model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. In any field, the training that a person receives has certain fundamentals, right? If you're learning orthopedic surgery, which I have not, you, you go into a, a class, you do your clinicals, you've, you've learned all the information out of the book, and then you go into your clinicals, you're, you're observing surgeries, or maybe you're on a, on a cadaver. Whew. Someone's doing that work over there with the dead bodies. And, and they're, they're learning the techniques, when they're done with that process and they start doing it themselves, one surgeon might move at a different rate than another. One might be right-handed and another left-handed. But they're going to follow the fundamentals that they learned in medical school. At least, you hope, if they're operating on you, that they're following the fundamentals that they learned. If someone goes off to a technical school and they learn all kinds of things about this particular program and how, how to uh, operate it, facilitate it, and repair it, they, they might go into the field and they're, 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 they're applying their trade, right? One person might do it at a different rate than another with different levels of skill and they might follow a slightly different process, but they're going to follow the fundamentals or the thing's not going to work. That's right, right? So one, one person looks different than another Christians don't all look the same. Christians don't all think exactly the same. But if we are pressing on while looking into God's Word and submitting to God's Spirit while fellowshipping with one another, there will be obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. That, that, that's the way it goes. This is what happens when God is ruling. Same ruler, same standard, same spirit who enables many, many, many similarities from one Christian to the next. Differences too, but fundamentally the same. Why? Same standard, same Lord, same spirit producing change. Let's head back, please, to Romans chapter 6. Are you seeking to be conformed to the standard set forth by God's Word? Are you seeking to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? I pray you are. Fourth and finally for this morning, God's reign produces righteousness. God's reign, His rulership, His kingdom, produces righteousness. Now let's take a look at these passages that are marked beside that statement. 16, 18, 19, and 22. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? That's a, ha a happening thing. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, right in the middle of the verse. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And down in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Well, I have a lot of things to say. Um, this is of utmost importance. This is a very similar concept to the one that we just spoke about, that God changes our goals. He changes our heart. We're under the reign of grace. These are all important things. But so that I don't miss this opportunity, the reign of grace is a reign of righteousness, is the reign of God. These are not really three separate concepts. We are not subjects of an inanimate power, grace, or of an inanimate standard, the words of Scripture, we are subjects of God Himself, our Creator, Sustainer, and Savior. We are subjects of God. Slaves to God. 
not just to an objective truth and not to an inanimate power. We are slaves to the eternal one God. The God who always has been. The God who is. And the God who ever will be. He is our God. He is our master. And when we talk about these things, we have to understand we're talking about coming under his authority. This is why we started by talking about his kingdom being over all and that we live in God's world. When we get to these concepts in verses 16, 18, 19, and 22 about the acting out of God's standard, this is the result of coming under the authority of God. When we come under the authority of God and His grace is ruling in us through His powerful Spirit, who is God, ruling in us, the result is righteous thought. Righteous words. Righteous deeds. To have unrighteous thoughts, to have unrighteous words, to have unrighteous deeds, is to not be under, rightly, the authority of God. God's reign produces righteousness. The theory is demonstrated in verse 16 when he says, if you present yourselves to sin, sin is your slave. If you present yourself to righteousness, you're a slave to righteousness. You're under righteousness. But remember, if you're under righteousness, you're under grace. If you're under grace, you're under God. That's how he concludes in verse 22. You're slaves of God. He built his way there. Under grace, under obedience, under righteousness, leading to sanctification. But you're under God. You're you're slaves to God. When we are slaves to righteousness, it results in righteous deeds. Verse 18. Having been set free from righteousness, you have become slaves of righteousness. We've been set free from and set free to. When we present ourselves to righteousness or to God, we must understand that it is God who we're presenting ourselves to and And the result is that we're being committed to God and it leads to, and this comes up twice in verse 19 and verse 22, it leads to sanctification. It leads to sanctification. Here's the Greek term, hagiasmos. It means consecration, purification, the effect of consecration, or a sanctification of heart and life. So I want to talk just for a moment about two different kinds of sanctification. One is we have been declared sanctified. Declared sanctified. We are holy. That's why he can call the Corinthians, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, saints. He calls the Romans saints. They're God's people. They're holy. We are holy. We have been set apart for God's glory, for God's purposes, and for God's kingdom. But we're also, in another stance, being sanctified. It's a process of being sanctification. We are growing in our relationship to God in our conformity to His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, here, as I read these words, because the word is hagiasmos, the root word is holiness, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, declared sanctified, and it doesn't necessarily mean growing in sanctification. The concept there is, When you're subject to righteousness, it leads to hagiasmos. It leads to demonstrations of holiness. Demonstrations of holiness. The wording here is holiness or consecration. When we are slaves of God, there will be righteousness and holiness on display in our lives. Look at the end of verse 22. The fruit we get, the word get there is the word echo, 
It means to have. The fruit we have leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. There's a holy fruit that comes forth when we submit ourselves to God. What's fruit? Well, you, you, you go to a tree or a vine, and that thing's been in the ground, and it's been receiving its uh, nourishment, and these little things grow on it, and you grab it. It's fruit. When, when you grab a piece of fruit off a tree, you know that thing has been alive to produce that. The nutrients has been flowing, and here we have evidence that this tree is alive, and now I get the, the, the blessing of, or cursing, depending on your thing of fruit, uh, taking a bite. Well, when we are surrendered to God, there will be evidence thereof. The fruit you have leads to sanctification. It leads to demonstrations of holiness. It's spiritual fruit. I prefer, personally, to express this as practical righteousness. Practical holiness. Where when I am surrendered to God, it will be obvious to those around me that I have been marked by God and His fruitfulness is evidenced. Rather than this being looking at this as like this, this stair-step I'm climbing up this ladder toward a sanctification level. I, I, I really see he's telling us when we're surrendered to God, we have this fruit, have this fruit that demonstrates, leads to, it's dem demonstrative of holiness. Real holiness. Not fake holiness. Now I learned this in a Sunday school class and now I've, I've, I've really mastered it and so now I really know how to do this, this spiritual activity. No. Spiritual activity is produced by God alone. I, of my own resources, have no spiritual ability to produce fruit. It's spiritual fruit. This is one of the things that impressed me about our sister, Miss Cole. She grew in her 80s. She grew a lot in her 80s. You talked to her. You know it. God was at work in her, changing her, softening her, sweetening her through His Word and His Spirit. The more we come under the authority of God, the more His fruitfulness is evidenced in our lives. It's demonstrated in accordance with the standard of teaching to which we were committed we don't have time to look at Colossians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 1, which I would like to. I would encourage you this afternoon to look at both of those texts. They're not fully developing this concept, but what they do is they give little samples. In Colossians 4, he talks about walking in wisdom and using our words properly, being seasoned with salt. And in 1 Thessalonians 6, he talks about how the church at Thessalonica because they were followers of those following Christ, they became examples to believers, and they, <coughs> excuse me, they testified of the gospel so much so that when people were passing through that region and Paul was trying to give them the gospel, they said, oh yeah, I heard about that from the Thessalonians. You know what they had heard? That those people had turned from idols to the living God to serve the living true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. What a difference their lives had demonstrated because God was at work. Holiness, fruitfulness was coming forth from their lives because they were following after God. So I have a question or two for us to consider. Have you been demonstrating God's fruitful, righteous nature? Here, here, or hang on a second. Now I'm taking this one and I'm going to start the typing or the thumbing. Okay, I don't know if you thumb on your phone or, or what it is you do, but the speech is also typing or texting or social media-ing. And is God's fruitfulness seen in the activities of our lives? What are we pressing toward? Is His fruitful, righteous nature being displayed in your home? In your workplace? When you're on the road? Pause. 
when you're all by yourself, when there's no one around, no one knows what you're doing, and no one knows what you're looking at, no one knows what you're reading, no one knows what you're listening to, is God's fruitful, righteous nature on display when no one knows what's happening. A lack of accountability is a slippery and hard place, but a believer in Jesus Christ submitted to the Spirit, we're convicted when we're alone and when we're in public. Why? We're under God's reign. It's a fruitful, gracious reign that impacts the heart, impacts my goals, and impacts my actions. He tells us to present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Brothers and sisters, there's hope. There's hope for you right now. I don't know if you're struggling. I don't know if you've been struggling. There's hope. Right now, take time to talk with God. Right now, confess your sin to Him if you need. Right now, commit yourself to Him afresh. We as a church must walk in righteousness. It is as important as ever for the church to live out the call of God in our lives. The world needs to see the light of Jesus Christ. This, this world is, is really in a bad place. It's been in a bad place for every generation. Sin. Sin has been around since the garden. This world needs the light of Christ in our deeds, in our expressions, and in our witness. Well, perhaps you might think, uh, right now my life is a mess and I'm enslaved to sin. Righteousness isn't coming forth from my life. I have good news for you too. Are you sick of being controlled by sin? Are you sick of being controlled by your passions? Turn. Turn. Right now. From your sin. Turn. It has nothing for you. It will give you nothing good. It will not fulfill you. Temporary pleasures is all you get from sin. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will give you eternal life. And He will free you from the chains that bind you to your sin. There's hope. No one has to leave this place. No one has to shut this off. Discouraged. We can turn from our sin and turn to Christ to receive His grace, His mercy, and His help. Call out to Him today. His reign is a reign of grace. He changes our hearts, our goals, and our actions. Let's pray together. Father, do Your work in us. We know this is spiritual work. Your Word is true. Your Spirit is alive and powerful. And we pray, Father, that even in this moment now, He would do His work of convicting of sin righteousness and judgment that sinners would be saved and believers set free to serve you wholeheartedly we pray this in jesus name amen